turn in Matthew's gospel to the 26th chapter, and we are here at the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal on earth. And that prompted a question in my mind, if you were to have one last meal, what would you put on your menu? Could be a fun thought experiment in one sense to, to dream. Mine would probably be In-N-Out Burger. Praise God. Yeah. Because I might have some this week. Oh, praise God. Again, I hope it's not my last meal, though. But in our culture, especially in our American judicial system, this is not a merely hypothetical question. There are those who are going to be executed, and they have a chance to pick their last meal. And they've made, over time, some interesting dining selections, as you might imagine. Some have asked for rather extravagant entrees. That would maybe be my assumption. But most people actually ask for comfort food, I think, things like fried chicken to be their last meal. For example, Teresa Lewis asked for two fried chicken breasts, buttered peas, German chocolate cake, and a Dr. Pepper for her last meal before she was to be put to death. Mr. Heidnik requested two pieces of pizza with two large cups of coffee. I guess he was not at all concerned about heartburn. Timothy McVeigh, of course, the famous bomber or infamous, really, he wanted just two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. That's my favorite flavor, too. What a strange coincidence. (laughs) Well, let me put it back to you. What would you ask for if it was your last meal? Interestingly, to now turn the tables to something far more serious, it's Jesus had a very specific lineup for his meal, his last meal. He had a particular menu. Only it wasn't selfishly to please himself, to to have a last joy before he enters eternity. It it wasn't about feeding himself, really. He sets up the meal, he sets up the order of the dinner in a very particular way because he was actually still giving, he was still teaching, and he was actually feeding our faith. And he's going to do that this morning as we walk through this text. To feed our faith, to build up our faith, he was preparing us as we walk this life of faith, as he's preparing in the story to lay his life down for us. And he shows it all about what it all means. What is his death for? He does it by having this last meal together. And that's what we're going to prepare to do as we take of the word this morning and prepare for this fitting meditation as we actually come to the table. So the word for us is feed your faith. Do that every day, of course, this morning as we prepare to come to this table. But feed your faith, bolster your faith, strengthen your faith. How? By looking constantly at the cross, being tethered to the cross, having your heart and devotion just so fixed there. Why? Because if your faith is tethered to something as so good as the cross, to something where His faithfulness and love remain unwavering, proven at the cross... Your faith will not waver because the cross hasn't wavered, because his love hasn't wavered, his faithfulness hasn't wavered. So feed your soul, feed your faith by looking at this cross. And we'll have three instructions about how we do that, how to feed your faith at the cross here. And we'll see it first in verses 17 to 19. First, rest in the guidance of his plan. Feed your faith, bolster your faith as you meditate on the cross by first realizing as you rest in the guidance of His plan. We we feed our faith, so to speak, as we see and we rest in the fact that He's still in control. This is what the cross reminds us. He is still in control. That is, His plan is coming to pass perfectly. 
But that's even in the face of what we'll find here is injustice, the find of evil and betrayal. In the face of all of it, he's still in control. And he's still in control, as we'll see, and this is our assurance because of the cross, he's still in control for our good, no matter what takes place. And in part, that's what we saw last week as we began our study in Matthew 26. Remember, we because we're following Matthew. He contrasted for us, well, here is Jesus' plan. He says, I'm going to be betrayed in two days. But then his murderers that wanted him dead said, no, 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 we can kill him at any time, but not in two days. We can't have it during the festival. So we had this clash of plans or timetables. But despite their insistence to not have Jesus put to death during the festival when so many people would be around and it might cause a great uproar and the Romans might come down on them, we find in verses 14 to 16, if you recall, Judas, of course, comes to offer to betray Jesus. And that is an offer that the Jewish leaders cannot refuse. And so in the end, we see that Jesus' plan to be betrayed at the height of the festival is playing out perfectly despite even others' evil intentions. But as we come to it now, before we actually get to his betrayal, he wants to take a moment, a deep breath. This is like the still before the storm and have one last meal with his disciples. And the disciples expected it because it was part of faithful Jewish worship. They had to celebrate the Passover feast. And so they asked Jesus about that because now we're on to Thursday and they know it's coming. This is part of being a faithful Jew, obeying the Old Testament. You had to observe the Passover feast. So verse 17 now, finally do our text. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now just to clarify, the feast of the Passover was immediately followed by the feast of unleavened bread. And so often in Jewish way of speaking, you could talk about one or the other and actually mean both. You might say the same thing as you talk about winter break, you're talking about Christmas break and break for New Year's, this kind of thing such that now as they're looking to the first day of unleavened bread to come, they know we're coming to the conclusion of the Passover, which is culminated with this feast, this celebration. But Jesus, where are we going to celebrate it? Of course, they don't live in Jerusalem, so they don't have an immediate place to stay. And surely, many are out searching for Jesus. Many want to find him, some for good, of course, but we know many are out actually to betray him and to kill him. So where would one gather with his disciples so to not garner or draw the wrong kind of attention. But we find to all of these problems, Jesus is prepared. He has a plan. He's got it straight already. Look at verse 18. So he says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, Mark and Luke tell us that this certain man that they're supposed to be looking for is a guy who's going to be holding this jar of water. And as they see him, they're to approach him, and they're to talk to him, and then follow him to whatever place, lodge, or inn, or house where he's staying, because that's the place that was going to be ready to have Jesus eat the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, the question comes, how did Jesus know this? Did he prearrange this? Had he worked out the circumstances ahead of time? That is, maybe when the disciples didn't know it, he had made an agreement with this with this man, that he would be standing in such and such a place where they could catch him and be led secretly and quietly to this place? Or was it that Jesus supernaturally knew who a hospitable master would be 
and who would be a servant in a certain location and what he'd be holding and so forth, that he had divine revelation about these things and then pursued it and set it up this way. The text does not expressly say how Jesus knew there would be a certain man. And of course, as the other gospels note, that he'd be holding a water jar. I suspect, frankly, that he had made arrangements, unbeknownst to the disciples, of a secure and relatively private place to celebrate the Passover with them. However, even if Jesus had supernatural knowledge and how this is set up, either way, you see, Jesus is having his plan take place. He's prearranging everything, whether he's doing it in the ordinary means we might do. You know, you call ahead of time as you're coming into a town to make sure there's a room for you. Or whether he just supernaturally knew, so to speak, oh, there will be room. Either way, it's all in Jesus' control. He will celebrate this feast with them. He's determined to do it, and he's made plans to do so. Because what becomes quite clear is that this last meal with them is very important to Jesus. This is going to prove such a crucial teaching moment for him to explain for the disciples and for us, of course, what his upcoming death is all about. Because you see, he talks about here, he says, his time is at hand. That's part of the message. This is it. Throughout the Gospels, he'd been saying, now is not yet the hour. Well, now's the hour. It's here. The culmination of his whole perfect earthly ministry is coming to these final hours, day and a half of his life. It's so very important, and he wants to instill that and explain that to his disciples at one last meal. And so he prepared for this. And to prove that it wasn't going on a whim or this wasn't just some dream, that he came into town, oh, I bet we can find a room. Have you ever done that, been on a road trip, and you've entered into a town, oh, I'm sure we can find a place to stay. And then there's like a basketball tournament happening in this town you never heard about. There's no rooms anywhere. You're thinking, I'm going to have to sleep in the lobby. That's never happened to me. But Jesus wasn't taking those kind of risks. He set this up according to plan perfectly, such that when the disciples follow through on his instructions, what do they find? Everything takes place just as Jesus says. Verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. The point is here, Jesus had a plan. He had an agenda, and he was preparing everything for it. And that's true all throughout these last hours of his life. Get that. Where we're going to encounter all kinds of chaos. And the chaos that follows, he has a plan for that. There's going to be a betrayal. It's horrible. He has a plan for that. He's going to be abandoned by his disciples. He has a plan for that. He's going to see the cowardice of his disciples who desert him. He has a plan for that. There's going to be the greatest injustice of all of history. He has a plan for that. None of that happens outside of his orchestrated plan of history here. He's guiding every step along the way, not only of his, but everyone else's, as we'll find. And not only that, even every what seems like a misstep is in his control. And that is particularly true here, of course. We're dealing with the high point of history. But that's true about your life, too. We know that from, if you're in Christ, Romans 8.28. He works all things together for good. He has a plan. He's prepared the way ahead of you. Even when you don't know where it's going, even when you don't know what's around the corner, know that He is around the corner and He has a plan. 
Even when things seem ill-prepared, out of order, bad timing, disjointed, unorganized, His will is never any of those things. Even for you, it's being perfectly done right on time. And part of this here is we see Jesus controlled even in such chaos. We're called to rest in that. To be prepared to walk in accordance with His will, with trusting obedience. Knowing that if I can't make sense of it, I know somebody who will. And it's my God that I walk by faith in. Which leads then immediately, though, to the second piece of that. How do we feed our faith at the cross? Yes, we know He's in control, but we also need to then recognize the grief of His betrayal. Recognize the grief of his betrayal, verses 20 to 25. That is, yes, he's in control. He's even in control of everything of our life. He's in control of all that's going on here with the cross. But that doesn't mean it's all going to be easy. And the cross is the ultimate proof of that. As we see, his road to walk and accomplish our salvation is marked by grief all along the way. But there's a purpose in that grief, too. So recognize the grief of his betrayal, because as we walk through our life of sin and brokenness, it's going to be hard. Not everything's going to come easy, even though he's in control. But again, there's a purpose for that. There's an end for that. And that's what faith is when we walk by faith in it. Well, let's see this as Jesus now sits down with his disciples, finally at the meal, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. So they're finally here, sitting down, ready to have a good meal together, a meal they were all familiar with. And then he drops this grief on them, verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now they didn't have the kind of tableware we have of metal forks and so forth, but I just... It's like I can imagine. He says this, and everybody's fork just clinks onto the table. Or at least their, their mouths drop open, and everything becomes dead silent as those words sink in. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? See, this is the horror of it. He predicted in verse 2, and he'd done many times before, that he was going to be delivered up. He was going to be betrayed, even to be crucified. But the grief that's added in is that He will not only merely be betrayed, sure, many people are out to get him, he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest disciples, one of those that followed him for three years, that had seen so many of his miracles, one that he so served. He's going to be betrayed by one of them. So whenever smiles and satisfactions and even joys in the remembrance of the meal that had started, it is smothered all by this word from Jesus. And they can't believe it. Verse 22. And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And the way they asked the question, we understand from the Greek language, they they expected that the answer is that Jesus would reply, Oh, no, of course not. It's not you. They could not imagine that it was them. And you see it because they were struck very sorrowfully. But this is not mere sorrow. There's a note of angst here. This is not mere sadness. You might say they are sorrowfully distressed at this word from Jesus. Again, they can't imagine any of them backstabbing him. They love him. He is their deliverer. He's their savior. He is their Messiah. They're dear friends. No, none of us could do this evil. They couldn't imagine it. 
And then Jesus continues and insists. Verse 23, he answered, He who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. His point is, no, despite all of your insistence, one of you, my closest friends, enjoying table fellowship right now, dipping in my bowl, and understand in the way that the dinner happened, everybody was sharing all of the same plates, so to speak. They were all taking from the same things. They were enjoying fellowship together. The, the Passover Seder was usually a family event led by the Father. And here, Jesus is with his spiritual family, those who believe in him. Shown in their partaking and sharing this food together. They're close companions. They're true friends, not, you know, social media connections. They're there in person, in unity, a family. And yet he insists, no, one of you who's at this table eating with us right now will betray me. And it must be this way. It was ordained. It was prophesied in the scriptures. God had said this is what would happen. Such that as Jesus begins to explain, verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. As God had ordained, as God had planned, as God had written in His story of history before it even happens, I must be betrayed. It was predicted and written out ahead of time in the Holy Scriptures. Like in Psalm 41. In that Psalm, David, he's lamenting in his weakness In his time of need, everyone's turning on him. Everyone's turning away from him. They're spreading lies about him. They're rejecting him. And it's horrible. But his grief is compounded. It is salt in the wounds to find that not only do his enemies oppose him, but also one of his dearest friends. He says this in Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Betrayal. It was ordained that as King David had been betrayed by his closest companion, that his many greats' grandson, King Jesus, would also be betrayed and backstabbed by one of his closest friends. In whom I trusted, who ate my bread, my close friend has lifted up against me. Why did God have do it this way? He's in control. Why did he ordain and plan to have the salvation of his people play out like this? It's in part to show the ugliness of our sin. And to show that really our sin against God is a betrayal. A betrayal of his goodness. A betrayal of his mercy. A betrayal of so many things he's done for us that we did not deserve. And yet we have spurned him and turned from him and rejected his word. It shows the ugliness of sin. It really is betrayal. That's partly, I think, why God ordained it this way. But furthermore, why he ordains it that way? Because he knows many of us that walk in this broken world, we get betrayed. Jesus knows that pain. He knows the pain of betrayal. He knows the pain of being left in the cold, abandoned by those you were trusting and leaning on. He's a sympathetic high priest to any who call on him. All of this was part of his plan to show the sorrow of sin, but also show the depth of his compassion, that he came down from heaven to enter into this and did so into the full. And so 
Yet, though it be true that this betrayal is all part of God's plan for salvation, we see, though, then, the betrayer, though, himself is not absolved from his evil. Not a bit. Look as we go on in verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if he had not been born. Jesus has given similar woes throughout this gospel. Remember, he did it repeatedly in Matthew 23 as he pronounced woes upon the Jewish leaders. That is, be terrified of the judgment of God. And this is what woe would mean. But no woe has sounded so hopeless as this one. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born, the one who would betray me. Now, immediately, we might throw up objections or outcries, but wait a minute, that's not fair. See, the Son of Man goes as it's written of Him, as it's ordained of Him. He's going to go as God has ordained. How can you then hold the one responsible to make that happen? Does He really have a choice in that? I mean, if God designed him for, for him to be betrayed and that's how he's going to die, how can you hold responsible the one who does the betraying? That doesn't seem fair. And we ask that question, of course, not only for Judas here, but we ask it as we just think about salvation for anyone. If God is in full control of salvation even, who believes, who gets saved, who doesn't, who's predestined for heaven, who's predestined for destruction, Again, if, if that's all in God's hands, how can God blame anyone, hold anyone accountable? If you're in control of it all, how is that fair? These are great questions. The Scriptures address some of these questions. However, it does not satisfy all of our questions as we might like. There's mystery here. How it is that God is in full control, and yet man, in this particular case, talking about Judas, he is fully responsible. One pastor helpfully clarified when he said, there is mystery here, but not ambiguity. He adds, Jesus is fully sovereign. Judas is fully responsible, period. The scripture's plain about this. And we can look ahead to Romans 9 to understand, and who are you to question God? But again, how is that fair? Well, in one part, what have we seen with Judas over these past couple weeks? I think it's true. As much as he would know in the sincerity of his heart, I think he genuinely wanted to follow Jesus. But evidently, he doesn't want to do that anymore. What, what happened last week? He already sold him for blood money. He doesn't want to be with Jesus. Judas did what he wanted to do. And what did he want out of it? He wanted money. And he's going to get money at the expense and at the abuse and of the injustice of the Son of God. And for that, though, even though he got what he wanted and did what he wanted, he's going to reap the penalty for it. Judas did precisely what he wanted to do and got what he wanted. And in that way, his will was free. And yet, God, even still in his perfect knowledge and plan, we understand Judas was walking in step by step with God's perfect will to result in the ultimately salvation of his people. Now, to put ourselves in Judas's sandals, if we dare for a moment, Put yourself at that dinner table. You're all sitting down. Maybe the meal has started. And then Jesus drops this comment. Oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. You had just been out earlier selling him for 30 pieces of silver. 
And what would you think if Jesus mentions that at the table for saying when you sit down? Does he know? Did he see me go out? Did he notice the extra 30 coins in my bag? Does he suspect me? I'm caught. This is it. And yet, Jesus says nothing to him so directly, at least to identify him to all the disciples and to jump on him. I mean, this is, he's seen Jesus do some amazing things. Wouldn't this be such a way for Jesus to now pounce on Judas? I know who you are, Judas. I know you sold me, but nah, not today. That's That's what Rick Damon do. Why doesn't Jesus say anything? Why doesn't he stop this? It's all part of the plan. This is intentional. He means it to happen just this way. But so it is as Judas thinks maybe I'm being revealed. You know, all the disciples were asking him, it's not I, is it? And if Judas doesn't ask that same question, you know, he's already going to reveal to the rest of the disciples, oh, no, it is me. And so he finally gets up the courage to ask here in verse 25, And Judas, it reads, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Interesting to note, he doesn't say, Is it I, Lord? He says, Is it I, Rabbi? Which means teacher. We saw the Jewish leaders repeatedly call Jesus Rabbi. They wouldn't call him Lord like that in this setting. And to that question, though, Is it I, Rabbi? Jesus tells him, You have said so. In other words, you've said it yourself. It's you, and I know it. Again, what a gulp in his throat there must have been after that. And yet, even the way Jesus phrases it, it was not as explicit as it could have been, such that I think the disciples, as they overheard that, they didn't quite know what he meant by this. Such that as even John's gospel records, which, by the way, later in the dinner, we know from John's gospel, Jesus identifies Judas particularly to Peter and John, and even still, they don't understand what's going on when Judas leaves. They think when Judas leaves the dinner, he's going out to get more groceries or to go give alms. They don't get, he's going to go get soldiers and kill their Lord. There's ambiguity here, and intentionally so. There's subtlety. But even though to all the onlookers, even the way Jesus phrases this, things are subtle, hard to understand, Jesus knew precisely who his betrayer was all along, which also astonishes here in that in his treatment of Judas over this whole life of his ministry with him, these three years that Judas is with him, Jesus' treatment of Judas was still so good, so filled with kindness, so much love, so much closeness, so much true friendship, leaning into one another that none of the other disciples suspected him. That's astonishing. It wasn't, oh yeah, who's going to betray you? Of course, Judas. (laughs) You never liked him anyway. Not at all. He never seemed to treat Judas different than the rest. When he loved the rest, he loved Judas. And I think that was sincere. I think Jesus really cared for him. And so surely then when he's being betrayed by him, that was no small grief in our Savior's heart too. And so we have the grief that sin has caused and causes. 
such that as we see here, this is part of the design. As sin and grief have entered the world, so should the way that will eliminate sin also be marked by grief. That would be the right thing, the fitting thing. And there too would be comfort, even in our own greatest of griefs. Understand, grief is a part of this road, part of this walk in a broken, sinful world. And some of those griefs come out of our own sin, our own brokenness. Some of those griefs are wrongs done to us. But understand, this sorrowful walk of faith, this walk with the cross, in particular here, punctuated by betrayal, punctuated by injustice, punctuated by evil, reminds us that grief of whatever sort is not going to be the last word for those in Christ. That's what the cross tells us. Just as David had hope in the promises of God when he said in Psalm 30, verse 5, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And the cross, followed by the resurrection, proved beyond all doubt that joy is coming. Because forgiveness is coming. Mercy is coming. Relief is coming. Resurrection is coming. Peace with God forever are coming. Even if we will walk a road of grief all along the way to get there. The cross was no different. So remember that. Feed your faith on that grief. Because there is joy that comes in the morning because of the cross. Finally, remember the gift of his death. Feed your faith at the cross to remember the gift of his death, verses 26 through 30. That this assures us in all whatever griefs and pains we walk through, that there is the surety of our relationship with God. The gift of eternal life through the gift of his death of his son. And indeed, as they sit down then finally to this Passover meal, it's a highly symbolic meal. It was in the Old Testament Passover, and Jesus is giving it all kinds of meaning now in the New Testament era. Because he's trying to teach us, he's trying to teach these disciples, namely this, life comes by faith in the gift of his death. Life, eternal life comes by faith, trust, reliance on the gift of his death for you. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Again, from the very beginning in the book of Exodus, as God stipulated, you're going to have this Passover meal every year. He did it to be a remembrance that they would never forget what he had done for them in Egypt. When he passed over their houses and didn't kill their firstborn because they had killed the animals and put the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over their houses, but he killed all of the Egyptian firstborn. That that was the moment where that broke Pharaoh's will and he finally let go of the Israelites to send them to the wilderness and eventually God to lead them to the promised land. The Passover meal was to commemorate that forever in their life. This is where your life started. This is where it begins. You're always looking back to know God will be faithful to his promises in the future. And Jesus is recalling all of those things to mind, even in particular, of course, here, the unleavened bread. Remember, they had to leave Egypt quickly when they were escaping the slavery from Pharaoh. They didn't have time to use yeast to wait for their bread to rise, so they had to take 
ancient fast food, unleavened bread. And they took it on the way. And as part of the Seder dinner, the Passover meal in remembrance, the, the, the one who was leading the meal, usually the father, of course, this case is Jesus. Typically, they would say this. As they take the bread, they would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Again, because they had to leave quickly. Only instead, Jesus says, he picks up that bread and he breaks it up and he distributes to them. And he says, take and eat. This is my body. In the middle of that ritual and dinner, Jesus now gives it new meaning. Or he might say, he's uncovering the meaning that it always had had. And now we know to the full. This bread represents his body. A body that's going to be broken and given to you. And of course, you're aware, the bread we're talking about, these were not nice fluffy loaves. This is unleavened bread. This is like a cracker that is snapped, broken, cracked, doled out. And so will his body be broken, bruised, crushed, struck. But get this. Why? And note, even as he says this, take, eat, this is my body. It's a gift to you. I'm giving you my body. He's giving his body over for you. The author of Hebrews puts it together like this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. See, he's the bread of life who lays down his life, his body for us in our place, to be broken in our place. So yes, you, our fathers, may have eaten the bread of affliction in the wilderness, but you are eating the bread that is my body, that bears where I bore your affliction to then take you into the promised land. Then he turns to the cup, verse 27. And he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. Now, there were actually four cups or toasts that were part of this Seder dinner. There were four cups because there were four promises given in the Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, about all that he would do in the Exodus. First, that he would bring them out. Second, that he would liberate them. Third, that he would redeem them, pay a price to buy them back to God. And then fourth, that he would take them as his people and be their God. So the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving That was that third cup, the cup of redemption, where a price was to be paid to restore you back to God. And he takes this cup and he gives it all new meaning, namely of a far greater redemption. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now we must have a brief aside because of church history here We need to clarify something. The cup did not literally contain Jesus' blood, just as much as the bread was not literally his body. And there's much more we can say about this, though Catholics continue to insist otherwise. But just remember, this was a symbolic Passover meal. Everything was filled with symbolism and described as something else. And Jesus plays on that symbolism here, reinterpreting it, giving it new meaning. Well, what then does it mean? I would love to spend much more time here, but we must move quickly. He says, first, that this is my blood of the covenant. 
And this plays on Exodus 24. You understand blood had to be spilt for a new covenant relationship with God. If you're going to relate to God, there must be blood spilt. But this is the blood of His covenant. Because you see, the old covenant did not work so well because people kept breaking it. And so there was this promise, Jeremiah 31, of a new covenant to come. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And why did they need a new one? Again, because they kept breaking the old one. They needed a covenant, a relationship with God, where they really knew God, every one of them. And they really had a relationship with Him. But what was the basis, the great glory of the new covenant, how it far surpassed the old? It was this. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 34. What was so much better about the new covenant? The promise was this, for in the new covenant, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. What did the new covenant accomplish? Forgiveness. The separation that was put between you and God, your sin is forever gone, erased, removed, never to come to God's mind ever again. And never to interrupt your fellowship with him. That would indeed be a new and glorious and greater covenant. But how does that happen? Well, back here in Matthew 26, the answer is there right in the middle of verse 28. It says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. How does the forgiveness happen? Because of the pouring out of his blood for the many. And with that word, Jesus alludes to another text that this time we must turn to it. Flip back in your Bibles to the Old Testament. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 53. This is the famous servant song, the song of the servant of God's suffering. But we see that his suffering was not in vain and had a great purpose. And his suffering was for his particular people that trust in him, as we see, because his salvation was effective. Let's look here. Let's look at verse 10. Of Isaiah 53. It reads, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's so much to say, but just notice, he's giving his life as an offering, as a sacrifice. That's what the suffering is all about. He is a sacrifice for the people of God, pouring out his blood to accomplish the will of God. As the next verse makes so clear, look at verse 11 now. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So yes, there's going to be grief, but there's a glory and good coming with it. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many. That's the key. That's what is alluded to from the Last Supper. Make many to be accounted righteous before God, and he shall bear their iniquities. Why are they righteous? Why are they declared to be perfect in God's sight? Because their iniquities have been born and he's died for them. As he makes so clear there in verse 12, in the middle of the verse. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. How did that happen? Because he took the sin of the transgressors upon him. He was seen as a transgressor before the holy judgment of God. As he goes on to say here, he bore the sin of many of the many, and makes 
intercession for the transgressors. He bears their sin. He bears our sin. Why? So he can die for them. So he can give his life for them. So he can spill his blood for them. So your blood won't be. So you'll be given mercy and peace with God forever. What's he saying? I'm your sacrifice. I'm your substitute. I am your life and I'm giving mine for yours. That is the glorious good news that this cup preaches. His life spilled out for yours. What a glorious Savior. Matthew 26 again. Because that's not it. The feast doesn't end there. There's one more cup left, the fourth one. And yet, on that cup, Jesus says, we're going to wait. We're not going to drink that one yet. Verse 29, now of Matthew 26. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In a way, this seems to end on kind of a sad note, doesn't it? Things are incomplete. And his comment maybe implies it's going to be a long delay, too, until we get to partake of this together. But in the word of Christ, there's great assurance here, too, isn't there? He's not going to drink it now, true, but he will drink it again. And and that's very interesting, right? Because he's going to die. And yet he's still going to drink. Why? Because he's going to live. Death won't win. But then note this as well. What does it say? Read verse 29 with me again. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Because I died for you. I purchased you. My death counts for you. So when I live, you live. And we're going to drink in the glory of my Father together. Because I gave my life. Yet I'm going to rise. I'm going to live again. And I'm going to raise you again. And by the end, we're going to celebrate together. As assuredly as my death had conquered all your sin, assuredly you and I will drink together in life celebration forever to the Lamb. Like we read in Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. So fast forward to when this is coming to pass. Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. What a glorious day that will be. But that will only be for us because of this cross, because of the gift of the Lamb's life for us. All that this broken bread and this red cup represent. The gift of his life for your sins. If you trust him. And indeed, that's all the reason to praise him and celebrate this table together. So with that word, I'm going to call the men forward who've been designated to distribute the elements to come. And so if you have trusted in Christ yourself, that indeed he is your only hope. That his death and his resurrection are the only reason you would be forgiven before God that you trust Christ, and that trust is public. Other people know about it. Then join us in partaking the table together. But if you have yet to believe, or at least publicly make that known in Jesus Christ, do not partake of these elements. For by the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11, you indeed may be drinking judgment unto yourself. With that before us, let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son that you would send him in love to die and rise for us. We thank you for this gift. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us for our our waywardness or fallenness, but we thank you that you are bountiful in mercy. 
that our salvation rests on you and you alone, and this is our glory. May your people know the assurance of that forgiveness and walk in the joy of the future, all because of what you have done. Do that, we pray, as we partake together. Amen.